Would you open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 23? <clears throat> and we are in an odd place in the book of Numbers. <clears throat> it's kind of odd to even be in the book of Numbers. Um, it's not the sort of uh, book that we often study, you know. So I would encourage you to embrace this because you, we may in the church go a long time before we come back to a walk through Numbers. Um, but we were at a pretty special place in it. I would say this is, <clears throat> if this was um, a movie from my generation, this would be the the build-up scene. I grew I grew up in the '80s with uh, Rambo and Schwarzenegger movies trying to think of the other ones that were like that. It was, it was the age of the action film, Die Hard, those things. They were, and in those films, you always had the build-up scene. It's, it's the scene where Sylvester Stallone puts his knife in his sheath and the clips and the gun and the vest on, and, and it has like, it's all the chicking going on. And as a, as a young boy, it's your favorite part of the movie. And the, there's an underwriting music. It would either be uh, the hookup scene, or, I mean like the cheeking scene, or the training scene in Rocky. Same pattern. Same, same, same. Nothing's different. They start the music and you hear the big bell and you think it's the Liberty Bell and, and the music hits and then they exercise and you're thinking to yourself, no, he's going to do it. It's the build-up scene. <clears throat> if you needed it in a 30-minute dose, you could watch an A-team. Because A-team had its, it, it was the whole, you'd go through the whole cycle in 30 minutes. So it had the five-minute build-up scene where they'd weld something <laughs> that would spring them. They always got locked in a warehouse with an arc welder. <clears throat> and they were, it, it was because you needed the, the, the build-up scene. Well, in the book of Numbers, we're in, we're at the build-up scene. And one of the things I sort of grieve is the, the more ancient way of giving it, it makes it missable. That we could read numbers and not even realize, like, we are in, we are approaching a climax. There's, it's happening right in front of us, but it sounds, sounds a little old. And it's a little hard to hold on to. And so hopefully today we'll be able to experience it a little bit. I just want to give you, in case you haven't been in Numbers for very long with us, a little picture of where we are. The book of Numbers is the story of how God brought the people from the mountain, Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments, how he brought them from the mountain of God all the way to the land of promise. And I suppose it didn't need to be a very long book, except that the Israelites made it long. Because they arrive at the land of promise fairly early in the book, but when they see it and they get report of the dangers in the land of promise, they say they reject God's promise as though it was not good, as though he was a liar. And they reject Moses. And they, they set their minds to return to Egypt. 
And it's in the mercy of God, actually, that he doesn't destroy them or leave them. In the mercy of God, he says, I'll remain your God, and I will eventually bring you into the land of promise, but I'm not going to do it with you. I'm going to do it with your children. So this generation, the generation that's rejected me, we're going to wander in the desert for the stronger part of 40 years until you've all died off. And I'm going to bring your children into the land of promise with me. And that's what he does. And that's what stretches the book of Numbers out a little bit. But where we've been in Numbers is the last portion, which is the 40 years are complete. So now in the book of Numbers, every step that we've been taking these past several weeks has been a step towards the promise. They're no longer wandering. They're advancing towards God's word. And they've covered, since, since they've begun advancing, they've covered great distances. They've endured hardships. They've conquered foes. They've experienced victory. All of this by the hand of God. But there, there's been a, a, a significant number of things that have happened. And as we come here in the 23rd chapter, they are camped essentially on the eastern shore of the Jordan River, looking into the promised land. Fairly good scholarship guesses that they're about 10 miles southeast of Jericho. On a clear day, they could see the city. I mean, they are right there. And then this problem arises. Right? This is why we, the climax is they're camped in the, what is said the Valley of Moab. So it's this low land <clears throat> that's surrounded by a bowl of mountains. And they're waiting for God to give them orders for the next thing. But in the mountains, looking down on them, <clears throat> is the king of Moab. His name is Balak. And he's looking down on them and he's conspiring for their destruction. And Balak knows that he's not, he himself, in the conventional way, is not strong enough to handle this himself because they've had these epic victories on the way there. So he doesn't think that he himself can do it, but he's allied himself with Midian, the Midianites. So there's sort of a, a group of people that are conspiring against Israel. And he's also reaching out to the spirit realm for aid. <clears throat> he has sent away for a man named Balaam, son of Beor. And as we talked about this last week, Balaam, son of Beor, is a highly respected spirit guide who makes a living at convincing the gods to come on the sides of people or to curse people. He he is the go-between between the spirit world and the kings and the, and the people. And Balak, the king of Moab, and all of the princes of the Midianites have sent for Balaam to come because if they can get the gods on their side, then they can destroy Israel. And all of this is happening unbeknownst to Israel. They're just fat, dumb, and happy in the plains of Moab. But in the mountains... There is a conspiracy against them. The story of Balaam goes from chapter 22, it's three chapters in the book of Numbers, which is just about the longest single narrative in the whole book. 
is a narrative that doesn't even involve an Israelite. Because it's here that God is setting us up. There's a... I'm sorry, that was just funny. That was good setup music. <laughs> Balaam is supposed to... King, the king of Moab, Balak, has hired Balaam to curse Israel. But the Lord... We talked about this last week, how the Lord has, through, through Balaam's donkey, in fact, kind of checked Balaam. God owns Balaam's mouth and is saying to him, you're going to go, go to King Balak, but you're only going to say what I want you to say. And through this period, this is, this is the setup of numbers. <clears throat> As we're building up to sort of the climax of what's going to happen, King Balak is going to ask Three times he's going to ask Balaam to speak. And three times when Balaam speaks, instead of cursing Israel, he's going to bless him. Now the challenge I have is, if we were to read all of chapter 23 and 24 together, I think it would feel tedious. And I think you might use the word boring. Because the language is old. So what I've done... <clears throat> is I've, gone, I've looked, read the three oracles, and I, or four actually, and I've meditated on them, and I've sort of, what I'm going to ask you to do is to imagine that we are in the Valley of Moab and that God's speaking down on us. So I've updated it. I've updated the thinking for the house of Christ. Because we know that even to this day, we have an adversary who sits beyond our view and conspires against us. And so this morning, as I read, I'm not going to read the actual oracles here. I'm going to read my reflection on the oracles as though they were being said to us today. And, you know, I'm, this is not a replacement for the word. This is a fruit of the word in my life. And I, my hope is that you can receive it as an encouragement, that these remain, these things remain true now. Today, Satan will not be able to garner the curse of God against us. We are his children of promise. And so this, this is just as true for us today as it was for them. So let me kind of play it out here. In the first oracle, the king of, of Moab takes Balaam to a high place. Getting the right high place is a big theme in paganism. Finding the right place getting everything just right. So he takes him to a high place where he can look down on Israel and see Israel and he sacrifices seven bulls and he, he sets all of the right things, right? All the right ritual is done the right way. And then he turns to Balaam and says, now curse him. And this is what comes out of the mouth of Balaam in 2018 to the house of Christ. I heard the beck and call of the great accuser from far off. And I came. He said, Curse the assembly of God for me, so I may scatter his adopted sons and daughters across the land. But how can I come against those whom God loves? How can I denounce the children of blessing and promise? Just look at them. Alone, weak, frail, but I know what they really are to him. To Christ, they are a multitude. Through Christ, they are invincible. 
If only I had their hope. Now when Balaam was done saying these things about us, the king of Moab was furious. He said, I didn't call you here to bless them. I called you here to curse them. And so he did what was natural. He said, maybe this is the wrong high place. So he took him to another high place, sacrificed seven more bulls, set all the situation right. And he said to Balaam once again, curse them for me. And Balaam opens his mouth. And this is what he said. O accuser, hater of man, you called me here to call down curses on them, but I'm charged by God to speak to you. So listen up. You've seen what God has done. Is he a liar? Is he weak? Is he undecided? Does he abandon? Will this God who you have seen again and again, he said to me, bless my people. And he said it firm like a rock. I look to see what is in store for them and all I can see is blessing upon blessing. That's it. They're, they're not like the other people's. God is deeply connected to them. He's like their king. It's like he's among them. And all around them are stories of strong salvation. He is unstoppably strong and he is theirs. And more dreadful still is this. They bear his name. Over them is a banner that says, look what God has done. You want to conquer them, but I see them as conquerors. You want them to fail and fall, but I see them as rising in victory. And God will not rest until their victory is complete. Well, when the king heard this, he was furious. And he took Balaam one more time to another third high place. And for a third time, he sacrificed seven bulls. And for a third time, he demanded that out of Balaam's mouth would come curses on the people of God. And this is what came out of his mouth. These are the words of the one who has had his eyes opened to God. The Almighty God has let me see what is so often kept behind the veil. And here's what I saw. I see abundance, peace, hope, and fullness for God's people. They are blessed beyond measure. And they will be nurtured towards goodness. Yahweh did not just make a promise to them. He loves them. Jesus did not simply come to save them. He died for them. The deeper I see, the greater God is, and the more blessed his people appear. And behind them, always strong is Yahweh. Who would dare oppose the one who bears the marks of Christ? You want to be blessed? Bless them. Beware. Curse them at your own demise. Well, after this third time, King Balak of Moab said, you failed me, Balaam. I would have offered you all the wealth in my house, but you failed me. You came down here, and instead of speaking curses upon Israel, all you've done the whole time is bless them. Get out of my sight. And Balaam said, I'll go. But before I'll go, I have a free oracle for you. And here's what he says. From one who was blind but was made to see, humbled by God and saved by the oracle of my own donkey, 
I know, hear, see, and speak the words of God, so listen. He has shown me something coming. Not now, but coming. I can see him. A king. A king of Israel. A king mighty in strength coming to judge nations, tribes, tongues, peoples. He will judge all those who surround God's people. And he will judge you. And the earth will bow but the glorious ones of God will be glorious. And at that he left. Now Balaam said these things, not because Balaam is great, but because God owned his mouth. These are the words of God that were given for Israel. And it's the setup. If you're reading numbers and you're taking the narrative in, you feel it. I mean, the big idea is the big idea is there. God is fighting for us even when we don't see it. And there is no way, no how, that a curse will come on the people of God. Because He is our glorious King, and He will not be persuaded otherwise. Israel does not even know this is happening. So we're set up. I'd like to read the first three verses of chapter 25, if you'll turn there. The only word I would add before 25 is meanwhile. Because for three chapters, we've been away from the camp. In the Hebrew, they often do this. They build space to make you feel the time. So for a while, we've been away from the camp. Meanwhile. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to do sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So, Israel yoked herself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Do you hear that? While God is up on the mountain, speaking words of blessing, fighting for his people, owning the mouth of the great spirit man, foiling the intrigue of the king of Balak and the alliances in the mountains, while God is up above us doing everything right all the time for our good and only for our good, while that is happening in the camp of Israel... They've walked away from God and have turned, they're actually by the end worshiping the God of the Moabites, Baal. 
it's some sort of temple prostitution that infiltrates the camp. Something like that. That the women of Moab, we will find out strategically, strategically infiltrate the camp with desire. And use desire and sexuality and fornication, use all of that to bend the Israelites off of God so that by the end they are participating in sacrifices to Baal, eating food sacrificed to Baal with the Moabites. And it uses this language. They've yoked themselves to Baal at Peor. That's the area. At Peor. They've yoked themselves. We use that word yoking to talk about marriage. You know, you shouldn't be unequally yoked. That's about the, we don't even know what a yoke is, but we say it. Okay? It, about the only time that we talk about this is maritally. The picture is clear. They were wedded to Yahweh, but after this scenario, they've left Yahweh. They have abandoned They have committed spiritual infidelity and abandoned Yahweh for Baal. That's what they've done. It was supposed to be thus set up. We were set up. This is just so foul. Do you feel it? All of what God's doing for them up beyond their view where they can't see, and down in their plane, at their level, in their lives, faithlessness. You know whose idea this was? Balaam, son of Beor. It doesn't say it here in chapter 25. You have to read a little while. Here you're just supposed to grieve. How does this happen? We come to find out in the 31st chapter of Numbers, it was Balaam's idea. It was Balaam's idea to incite, essentially thinking, listen, if you can't get God to curse them, maybe you can get them to abandon God. Right, chain's only as strong as its weakest link, right? If God, through his mighty faithfulness, will not let go of them, well... Maybe you can get them to let go of God. Maybe, if God is so devout about blessing them, maybe you can make them so unworthy of blessing that they would forfeit the blessings of God. I mean, our adversary is smart. This is what it says in the 31st chapter. Um, This is, it's accounting for, actually Balaam by this point has been killed. He gets his comeuppings. Israel tracks the Midianites down and Balaam down and strikes them down with the sword. But this is what it says. Moses says this about Balaam. He says, Behold, these, speaking of the women, on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Make them unworthy. Knock them down in a pile of their unworthiness. Paralyze them. Neutralize them. Make them unfit for the blessings of God. Nothing's changed. 
this probably doesn't feel that strange to that many of us. The fact that we know in our minds that God's on our side and for us and there's blessings that have been spoken for us and there's victory that has been claimed for us and there's good things that are intended for us and there's a promise that's awaiting us and one day we're going to be brought and nurtured and celebrated and brought into the union with the Lord and all these things we know to be true. But in our days and in our times and at our level and in our planes, we get infiltrated, we get tempted, and we show ourselves to not be nearly as faithful as we'd like to be. We prove ourselves to be unworthy of the promise. There's reflections of this in the word. If you actually think on the other side of the 40 years, at the very beginning, something like this happened. Something, it's painful how similar this is. Do you remember there at the mountain of God at Mount Sinai? God gives him the Ten Commandments, and he says, send Moses up to get the rest of the law. And so Moses goes up for 40 days, and in 40 days, he's getting the law. So all the while up in the mountains, God's working on their behalf to forge this promise, to forge for them a hope for goodness in the future, to do good things for them. All of that's happening up in the mountain. They don't hear it. They don't feel it. They don't experience it. It doesn't scratch their back or give them a sensation. They can't, they can't brag about it. It's invisible. It's happening. They don't feel it. And they grow restless. They feel bored. Next thing you know, there's a golden calf that they're bowing down to, and then they're getting up in revelry. could have been almost 40 years ago today. It wasn't, but it was at the beginning of this story. God fights for us. And sometimes we flounder. And why we flounder very often, we say, and by the way, where's God? In the midst of our infiltrated disappointment, we kind of throw a barb up into the heavens like, and where is he, by the way? Here's the consequences that happen. Look at the fourth verse. <clears throat> and the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord that my fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. He says, grab all the elders of Israel, the people in charge. Grab all of the responsible people for the behavior of Israel, and you hang them in public. There's just no way. This shows you how, this gives you an impression of how gross and total the infiltration had been, that the Lord is holding all of the heads. It wasn't like a few people doing this in the back alley. This was a communal sin, so that the people who bear the greatest responsibility are the ones who were in charge. Grab the elders of Israel and hang them, is what he says. So here's the break. Here's the, here's the catch. As we read an Old Testament story like this, and we see a parallel, 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 but we're not, we're not beneath the old promise. And we're not beneath the old law. 
So we can find parallels and parallels and parallels. But we should expect, expect to find something that is different. So we see. We see the parallel of like numbers. God fights for you. God fights for you in ways you don't even know. You may never know. Just like someone prays for you that you may never know and moves God, you may never see the vast majority of the goodness that has been done on your behalf by God. Same parallel. Likewise, just like the book of Numbers, we're like these people. Right? God's doing things behind the veil, up above where we can't see. And what we sometimes just are the most disappointing versions of ourselves. We have this promise, but we live so lowly beneath it, as though it's not worth much or as though we don't believe it. Right? Well, I feel that parallel. So what do we do with this last parallel? Take them out. It turns out 24,000 people die in this. Take them out and hang them. This is the very place that Moses preaches Deuteronomy. The next book of the Bible is essentially a long sermon, which he preaches, I probably think, in Shittim. It's it's right here. And in, this, in, in his sermons he's preaching, he gives a, it's a repetition of the law. He gives a repeat of the law. But there's a few new things that pop up. And one of them is this. Cursed is everyone who hangs from a tree. He says that. For certain vile sins, you hang someone on a tree. And they're supposed to hang on the tree, but not to stay overnight. Hang them on the tree and then take them down. But cursed are they if they hang on the tree. That's what Moses says here. <laughs> Here, after this sin. It's as though to hang someone on a tree is to place them, it's not only is it earthly judgment, you're experiencing death, but it's almost a death that suggests you're dying outside the promise. You're dying on the east side of the Jordan. You have no hope of receiving what God has promised. That's sort of what's behind that. So do we, must we follow that parallel, Right? The parallel that God's fighting for us, yeah, there. The parallel that we're disappointing, right? If we, if we, if our only hope is that we're not the weakest link, is that any hope at all? Paul the Apostle gets in this squabble. The book of Galatians is this squabble. He's dealing with a group of Christians who've accepted Jesus by faith. They've turned to Jesus. They're following Jesus, but they're being tempted now to turn back and be observant of the old law, to try to follow the old laws the right way to be able to put before the Lord, well, I lived a really good life. And Paul the Apostle says, pretty much in no uncertain terms in Galatians, that is insanity. You have to be crazy to ever want to throw your righteousness before God. You actually want to go back to the old law that curses us in our, dis- in our misbehavior and our disobedience? That's where you want to go? You just got saved through the blood of Jesus Christ and you want to now turn back and say, and I'm going to be, and I'm also going to justify myself by my ritual obedience. He says, it's insanity. It is insanity that you would leave Jesus like that. And he says this, this is Galatians 3.13. Jesus has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming for us a curse. As it is written, cursed is every man who hangs from a tree. That's where, that's where Paul goes. Paul says, listen, Jesus 
has taken the curse for you. So now that the difference between this story and our story, between the Old Testament and the New Covenant, is that we don't simply have a God on high who fights for us, hoping that we, oh, that we don't mess up down here. We have a God on high who fights for us and a son who came down the mountain and fought for us, right? A son who took all of our judgment on himself, who climbed up on the tree, who was placed outside the promise, who endured all of the judgment outside the promise so that you and I could have our most disappointing days and be infiltrated by the enemy and bring shame to the kingdom and not lose hope. The only question is, are you yoked to Christ? Are you wedded to him? Do you belong to him? I don't really care whether you believe he did this, that, and the other. That's good and that's fine. What, are you affectionately captured by him? Do you realize God loved me and fights for me on high and sent his son who fights for me down low so that I have hope at all times? And does that belief spur you on towards him? Because if you have any other way, I'll just tell you, you're set up for failure. Let me close in prayer. Lord, may we receive this invitation to Jesus uh, through your words and numbers. Remind us, Lord, that it is not how we do that gains us access. It's, it's how we know you. And Lord, there will most assuredly be people in the kingdom like the thief on the cross who lived wicked lives, but in the last moment yoked himself to Christ. And for that, Lord, I say praise be to God. Lord, and there will certainly be people who grew up religious all of their life thinking that everything was fine and they will find out they were yoked to their own prideful behavior. We pray, Lord. We pray for your mercy and that you would illuminate our eyes so that we could see and follow you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.